Hey everybody, this is Zach. Uh, this is man with apple in his mouth, Richard. <laughs> man who decided to start eating right before. <laughs> well, I want to keep this really professional. I'm trying to just up the game of this uh, this podcast as I can. I mean, that's so, what you got to do. You got to do what so, you got to do. <laughs> so that's why I tried to use like an actual microphone and like a boom stand and like a pop filter <laughs> and uh, the recording utility that um, I'm going to call out Zencaster. Yeah. Did, did not want to pick up the uh, UAD interface, even though I tested it with Google Meet and some other stuff beforehand. Yeah. Just to make sure it all, I, I could record an album with it in GarageBand <laughs> and send that off to, uh, to LA but Zencaster does not want to pick up the audio. So yeah, we'll that's see. really, really strange. That's okay. I'm going to have to try to, um, and I have the unfortunate personality trait where I don't like to give up on things. <laughs> so, uh, my very patient co-host Zach was just uh, waiting for about an hour while I tried to troubleshoot <laughs> why that was occurring. Uh, I mean, it's technology. Um, if, if you listen to the witchy folk, they say, uh, Mercury's in retrograde. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that'll give the witchy folk an idea of what, when we're uh, recording this too. Yeah. Maybe Zencaster <laughs> runs on Mercury and that's why it's retrograding or something. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever Zach said. Um, well, yeah, today, uh, we'll talk about the, uh, the, uh, video game Resident Evil 3. Um, but first, uh, let's talk about the me, me, me's. Uh, did you want to go first or did you, or did you want me to? Um, let's see. My podcast senses says I should go first so I can kind of police Zach with my eyebrows and facial suggestions. But <laughs> I'm going to let Zach go first because he's, he's already waited an hour to uh, shoot his shot. So I'm, I'm going to let him spray it all over you. All right. Well, I mean, I, I don't have too much. I have uh, four things, but two of them are, are kind of related. So. Um, I guess to start off with with the movies, um, I recently, for the very first time, I, I feel like a, a terrible horror geek. Uh, it was my first time seeing Halloween 2. Um, my wife is a huge, huge Halloween franchise fan and mm-hmm. was very horrified to learn that I have never seen the second <laughs> I thought that I had. <laughs> <laughs> to so be I, honest. recently i was watching uh, you know getting my wife through some of the um horror franchises that her maybe under good care uh, bad guidance good guidance her parents didn't let her watch when she was growing up <laughs> but it's kind of a blur so you have to refresh my memory which one is two two is the one that happens it, it's immediately after the first one like in terms of story um and that's the one where uh, Lori is taken to the hospital. Oh yeah, the and, hospital one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and also, I want to ask. Like, I know it's 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 theoretically for like sports type injuries and stuff, but like, come on, nurses hooking up in a hot tub in a hospital basement with the power out. <laughs> so I think I think we need to ask some of our nurse friends, uh, and then I feel like yes, that happens everywhere. <laughs> Nurses hooking up in the ER waiting room. Nurses hooking up in the broom closet. Like, I, I get the on-duty rooms. Like, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I, I get those those being a, a place to hook up. But, like, I don't know, a hot tub? Also, a hot tub that goes hot enough to rip flesh from your... 
your body. So let's <laughs> let's really talk about the real hero of that scene, which is the guy who designed the hot tub. Because he's like, okay, we can put this within sensible parameters, but what if they want to cook a ham in this thing? All right. But what if we need to boil a two hundred pound person? Yes. What if we need to like grab a sow from the farm and throw it in there and cook that bitch? I want my hot tub to have the capacity to do that. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah honestly i i feel it's um i don't know kind of kind of a a weaker entry like it's it's funny for goofy kills and there are some moments where it's i even i had the urge to go no don't go down that hallway mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um i mean it's it's fun it, i don't think it lives up to what the first movie did and I can definitely see why they went towards the let's turn this into an anthology franchise with the third one and then immediately veered right back into making it yeah. a franchise of I, dude in a Shatner mask. I think it's almost um, a counterexample that um, fans can use when they talk about, oh, well, why didn't they just continue on with the story in the sequel? And that's exactly what they did. Yeah. And it, it didn't really work because it, it, sort of took it out of the original like thematics and the elements um oh yeah yeah as much as i enjoyed also watching you know the skin peel off of um (laughs) you know this poor staff worker my wife was watching and she's like oh my god that's really unnecessary and it's like exactly it's beautiful (laughs) the best part of the movie i mean the entire movie is kind of unnecessary um Mm -hmm. and i you know doing the rewatch um it had never really occurred to me how unhinged dr loomis is in this first two movies Mm -hmm. like he's he's the therapist someone who is deeply disturbed and the psychiatrist is someone who's deeply disturbed and instead what we get is a therapist running around I think Donald Pleasance was actually drunk and during the filming of a lot of his scenes. So he looks drunk and he's also got a handgun on him. He's like, we've got to kill Michael Myers. He's the embodiment of evil. <laughs> yeah. Like, whoa, 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 old man. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of hard to think about it because his character, you know, like you're mentioning sort of uh, pushes the bounds of credulity. Yeah. Because it's yeah. it's like if he thought Michael Myers was such an issue, just like mix some rice in, in like his gruel or whatever tea. Like <laughs> you're like, there. He's yeah, he's there. He can't do anything. You have access to medicine. Like just take him out. You're the supervising psychiatrist. Like you could kill this guy. Who's going to complain? Yeah. 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 So I mean, it's, it's like he. It, He's he, he's just a hilarious character to to sit in, like if you were to write a cracked article, for example, or something like that, where you're like placing things in movies in the real world. It's like, wait a minute, this this man is board certified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he'd be a great addition to uh, like one of those main arcade fighting games where they just like poured in like random characters. You now I like... want to make Doctor Loomis and Mugen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. His special attack is drink and shoot. He's the embodiment <laughs> of evil. And then you have a 30% chance for like a, a hit kill. Yeah. Um 
but uh but yeah so, so that was one of the the things we watched the second one is something i've watched multiple times um over the course of the pandemic um and the more i watch it every like every time i watch it um it's more and more apparent to me that it's a you know capital w work is uh bo burnham's film inside if you oh yeah yeah the, the all, netflix thing yeah it's it's really good like i mean I, obviously he did not film that <laughs> in the way he purports to have filmed that. Um, but for the, for the purposes of, of the work that he's, he's uh, putting out in it. Um, it, th- there's a lot of interesting commentary coming from someone who got very popular at a young age, um, took a break from the road, doing the job that he had spent, you know, five or six years doing and then just like commenting on how the media landscape had changed in such a short amount of time um and how uh dysfunctional and um and uh removed that can make you if you are an internet content creator um because i mean like that's like you see that commentary a lot from like older artists who kind of get big very quickly. Like, like I'm thinking like, um, you know, musical acts tend to get older, uh, before they, they start getting a recognition and fame. So like they're, they're adults, right. But you, you very rarely get the insight of someone who manages to get very popular at a young age, grow up a little bit and kind of have the head fuck sink in of like, Oh wait, this is not normal. <laughs> this is very yeah. very strange. Yeah, watching it uh, with my wife, and um, then watching some of the musical segments, and being a big fan of uh, YouTube and internet personalities, um, at least so much for the the ones that I actually subscribe to, and then watching YouTube grow as a medium, which you know he initially kind of got his start in. I think he, for me, he sort of focused on the performative nature of content creation and sort of the, the artifice of like capturing the moment. Cause initially, you know, much like me and yourself looking at each other on these, um, these videos, you know, for like some, yeah, some semblance of human contact, you know, YouTube initially provided that sort of thing where you'd get into someone's home and then normally they didn't have a really good video or, really good audio quality, but there was something spontaneous about it, uh, possibly. And so there was a little bit of charm in that regard, you know, from Numa Numa guy to, um, you know, super obsessed girlfriend, you know, all these initial that content creators who kind of um, started something. Yeah, paved the way, had an expression. And then you realize that, okay, this kind of content really does have to be performative in a sense yeah. because you're you're marketing in, in some way. So you market, you know, your particular style, whether it's like, uh, I guess, like what? Uh, Shmo? Shmo? Uh, Shmo Yoho? Shmo Yoho? Yeah. yeah. Or just like, you know, a lot of these OG, you know, online personality people who eventually was like, okay, well, we develop clickbaity content. It has to like track along a large audience. And so, you know, you have to sort of um, 
you know, end up really kind of pushing the envelope with that particular character or performer. You know, you have people that post videos uh, of them playing like scary games and they have like over the top performances for how scared they are. And it's, it's performative, but then he also kind of delves into, you know, when you get to Instagram and et cetera, that becomes the language of communicating online. So you have regular people who are also generating performative content. Yeah. You know, you just have people that, you know, whether they want to be influencers or not, uh, even if you're just on your Facebook page making a post or a link or et cetera, there's like a level of uh, performative nature to how you're expressing yourself because you realize you have an audience, like the audience is watching you. Um, and so you construct your expression with that in mind. And I think he's, at least for me in watching it, he was trying to draw attention to the fact that, you know, that's, it's artificial, you know, it's really artificial in a way. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I, I found that particular um, angle on it interesting. So. Yeah, no, he's, he's, um, well, and I mean, even his non-commentary work, like his, his, uh, stand, I don't know if you've seen any of his other stand-up shows. Years um, ago. He it transcends what a regular comedy special is like it's it's more akin to a like variety show right but it also <clears throat> bleeds through the uh, the edges of, of how a performer normally interacts with the the crowd because he relies so heavy on people already knowing this is the type of show we're doing and then subverting that expectation of how a stand-up comedy special is going to go <laughs> you know yeah um it it very much youtubeizes um you know a live performance as well so yeah inside is is very good um it absolutely sucks the, my understanding is his his uh, intention was to start his a uh, like a live performances touring thing again after after you know a few years of therapy and kind of you know unfucking his head from from what like um celebrity had, had done with, with him like i guess emotionally and mentally uh health wise um he was supposed to start a live tour like february of 2019 or 2020 and then had to cancel everything yeah. so like this, this is an interesting coming from an interesting place as well yeah i think i think that that sentiment too um, sort of borders on an intent to approach like normality mm -hmm. because normality would be like, okay, you're a performer, you know, you're an artist, comedian, um, you know, sort of musical variety kind of uh, personality. Okay. Go out and do what you're supposed to do. And then instead he got, you know, sequestered in sort of the, the uh, COVID hibernation chamber that we all did. <laughs> where you know here's someone who's getting ready to ex express themselves and interact with society again and then they almost it's almost like that process of making that special was a foray into going even deeper because now he was ready you know like you said to go out but instead he has to create something that's even more um, intimate and personal and really even more sequestered off because now he's creating this this uh this piece this little you know this art you know recording netflix special that is um 
an expression of isolation. Yeah. So it's kind of um, interesting to think like, uh, you know, is that, is that an expression of, um, like he, he mentions a lot in the special, like, you know, just like all of y'all, I'm stuck in here, you know, by myself. Is it an expression of, of that, like being with us? Or is it also like a little bit of an expression of where he emerged from, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like getting ready to, uh, you know, leave out the door and you finally have freedom, you know, you escape this place. And then once you get 10 feet from the door that you just walked out of, oh, you realize, oh, there's a chain tied to my foot. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. So he just walks back in inside again. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, Cause I kind of try to think about, you know, what his expression would have differed had he been able to let go out again. And if it would have been as um, moving in a sense, be- because it, it wouldn't have had the same kind of universality that making a special about being isolated was at that time, you know, it hit everybody at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I I think if, if you could find, I I didn't look for any of it, but if you can find commentary, like I I feel like at least in my circle of my, my, uh, uh, what is it called? The, the monkey bubble of friends that you can you can keep track of online on social media i'm gonna um, call it the monkey bubble from now on <laughs> um i don't know what whatever the word was you were looking for that's the better version of it well no it's um it's a reference to research done where where i think primates can keep track of of a certain amount of um like friends and people to care about and people that are that are you know part of their circle of influence or circle of caring. Yeah. yeah. I I forget what Mm -hmm. the exact number is, but people have one as well. Like there's, there's a limit to caring about or your brain's ability to, to keep people to the the front of your mind. And I think it's like 150 people or so like anything past that just kind of loses um, like precipitously <laughs> drops in, in prioritization and importance. Now, I, I think we all realize that at least my, my uh, segment of generation, you know, you and I, when we started to add Facebook friends little by little, and then we realized, wow, there's, I think you, you probably have more than I do unless you've like combed through since then. Cause you're, you're generally a more genial kind of guy and, and whatnot. Um, that, and you know, I, I only went to, the same school that you did for about a year. And so then I just went back into the Petri dish of the world, but you realize at a certain point, like, wow, you really just can't keep track of all these people. And even now with like your Facebook friend list, it's kind of like walking around with like vestigial limbs. But if like, if my arm was covered in 30 tiny baby arms, but they didn't get enough nutrition and the nutrition is like actual (laughs) contact with these people. So now they've atrophied and died and they just like hang on as like carcasses, yeah. like on. That's like those like extended Facebook history of people. You know, dudes, I talked maybe once or twice, you know, in college, just still hanging out in my Facebook friend. Book. Yeah, see, I called a lot of people. Um, I've I've got 335. So well outside my monkey number. Um, yeah. So that makes sense. 
people. And I, I just know that because I, I just brought it up. So. <laughs> now, MySpace was trying to keep us in, on track, you know, because they were like eight top friends. Fuck the rest of them. Like, yeah. So they exactly. knew that we had a limit. You know, they said it well before them. They didn't know exactly what the limit was, but they're like, OK, insult the rest of your 142 that you can keep track of and just have your top eight. You know, honestly, MySpace is kind of uh, what I wish everything would go back to just because, you know, like. L- look at Tom, you know, he's mm-hmm. your first friend. He's probably a, an okay guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know that for sure. Like he could be a monster, but you know what he did when he got his payout? He mm-hmm. disappeared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't start talking about crypto or. <laughs> yeah, he didn't try to launch, uh, you know, penis rockets into space or anything. No, he took his money and he's like, thank you. I will just be silent for the rest of my life yeah. and not in the media sphere. Is, is the only reason that Zuckerberg doesn't go up into space is because he actually is an alien? So, like, why would he want to, like, return? Like, that's I, what I'm I, thinking. I don't know. I honestly think it's. I don't know, like, this is me making a lot of assumptions about another person that I have no interaction or knowledge of. Um, but I don't know, he's, the, the sense that I get is that he is more interested in ruling over people. Like, if he can impose uh, Meta, I guess, as a company, on people, like, that's what drives him not Mm -hmm. separating from people he wants to be above them Um, yeah i don't know why he wouldn't go to space but i mean maybe he just his interest is just in being you know like a roman emperor i mean the (laughs) simple answer is that he's an alien so yeah like like he doesn't need to go back yeah he he does it why would he go home (laughs) he was sent here on a mission he's trying to finish it up I was, it's funny because thinking about Zuckerberg is that I can't remember who it was that I was mentioning to my wife, but it was like this person was also an automaton-like, but they were really friendly about it. And so it was like, it's like the really friendly version of a Zuckerberg. <laughs> and somehow I felt that was a comp- compliment. And I think it was, but I, I'm struggling to grasp who that was. It was another like personality, you know, that's an actor or something of that nature. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Oh, Tom Cruise, maybe? Uh, maybe it was. No, it wasn't Tom Cruise. We weren't watching Mission Impossible at the time. Um, but it, it was someone you else. Stories about him being like different than other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like he could have very easily edged into like televangelist cult leader territory because I, I want to say that before he got his first acting gig, he was going into like seminary. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is very charismatic. Um, yeah. And uh, based on our uh, role playing of his character in a D and D campaign that we went through, uh, he would fit perfectly <laughs> with it. Yeah. <laughs> he would fit perfectly in that environment. Well, um, yeah, like I, I was listening to a podcast and one of the hosts knows uh, one of the, the uh, um, armorers for, that, that works for several studios. And apparently in terms of like pistols training and like weapons training, 
people that you would never want to get in a gunfight with are mm-hmm. Tom Cruise and Keanu Reeves because <laughs> they they are just apparently next level at it <laughs> in a way that other action heroes are not. Like they actually learn and like go through the process of like, yes, I'm going to learn how to be the most proficient pistol shooter that I can be. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, if you've seen, uh, you know, that whole viral Keanu Reeves where he's going through with like these uh, these spuds who just like shoot guns all day and like train him how to do that. And he's taking it very seriously. Yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah, so so uh, one of the the other things that I finished recently, it's it's actually not very long. Um, I actually recommend a lot of people watch these next two shows. Um, they're kind of similar in tone. Uh, both, both of them, I think are based off of, uh, graphic novels. Um, one of them is called the end of the fucking world. Um, and I don't know if you've seen this or not. It's a, um, it's a Netflix show and it's about this, this kid that, that kind of thinks that he is a, uh, sociopath. <clears throat> Like he has a a uh, hobby of like killing animals, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> and then he decide he he uh, decides that he wants to try to kill a person. Um. Meanwhile, there is a girl that takes a liking to him and just says, "Hey, let's leave school. Fuck it, whatever." And go. Isn't that and- always like the ladies growing up? You know, they really just were interested in the sociopaths. Yeah, <laughs> but he um he decides to yeah go on this road trip across England um with this this classmate of his and you know kind of tries to work himself up to uh, killing her. I mean, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, he sh- he has the opportunity. Yeah, but yeah, you know, it's it's uh let me see, let me look it up on Wikipedia. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, so there's only 16 episodes over two okay. seasons. Um, and the episodes are not very long. Like, they're mm-hmm. not drawn out, like, hour and a half long episodes. <laughs> um, because, you know, it's based on a graphic novel and it moves very quickly. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, I'm seeing here, it's, it's classified as a dark comedy drama. So if you like that. Um, and then the... The other one is actually based on the same author's, another graphic novel of the same author um, called I Am Not Okay With This. Um, Netflix canceled it because of the COVID pandemic and they couldn't shoot a second season. Uh, I think it was greenlit for a second season. Um, It's only like six or, uh, let's see, seven episodes. Um, But it's, it's got a uh, it's about a young girl who begins to figure out that she has these telekinetic powers. So it's kind of like a Jean Grey type origin story, but it's not Jean Grey. Oh <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I remember seeing the trailer for this thing. Um, Sophia Lillis is the the girl in question developing these powers. Um, she's mm-hmm. great in the It movies. Um, is Beverly. Uh, she's also very good in this. Um, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, 
I don't know why I like it, but I do know that I recommend it to people, uh, especially if you're a fan of of like comic book character type movies, because it's it's um, very different. It's not like a Marvel movie. It's it's more understated because it's got less of a budget to work with, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I recommend it. It's an interesting origin story for a superhero character that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it got to that two or three season mark before Netflix killed it. But I think with COVID, they were just like, nope, we're going to spend all our money on Red Notice instead. Oh, man, <laughs> what what a slog. What a slog of a movie. Um, a Red Notice? Yes. No, thank you. No, thank you. I saw it uh, over my wife's shoulder a little bit, I think, and then it popped in, in and out. And then I was watching it, and I could suddenly, re- it really crystallized to me why, at least in my mind, in my own uh, headcanon, why Ryan Reynolds was like, you know what? I need to take a break for a couple years from movie making. Yeah, I, um, we, it was, it's funny. We actually watched this a couple nights ago, so I guess we can include this in me, me, me. Um, yeah, it's I thought it would be way more fun than it was. Like there were a couple of scenes that I chuckled at because you know, it, it subverts an action movie trope or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um it kind of had a predictable ending and I was just kind of shocked that, you know, cuz this was one of the movies that was supposed to go to theaters and then mm-hmm. Netflix swooped in and bought. So Yeah. All I can say is if I had seen this in theaters, I would be extremely pissed. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt very formulaic in in a sense. Like you you sort of like you could see where the beats were going. And normally yeah. I, I don't I don't mind that. I actually don't mind movies being formulaic at all. Yeah. And I don't mind most of my media like following a particular formula. But if, right. if it isn't really doing it well, um it, it there were a lot of scenes um where you're watching Ryan Ryan Reynolds trying to do his comedy thing. And he's kind of playing like the same, like shtick sort of role that he's played before, which is fine. Van Wilder. But, yeah. The same role he's played for 20 years at this point. Yeah. But the, the, the jokes just don't land or like the interaction just doesn't land with, with the comedy. Cause you, in that situation, you want, you know, Dwayne Johnson's character to be like the straight man. And it's just not there. Whereas I actually saw, um, what was it? Uh, Jungle Cruise. And I enjoyed that one much more than I thought I would. Now, I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but I'd say that his interaction uh, and his chemistry with, uh, was it, uh, God, what is her name? Um, oh, um, it's not Amy Adam, Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. Yeah, I thought his interaction with her was actually pretty good. Um, and some of their kind of banter and, and, and whatnot. In Jungle that, Cruise, yeah. Yeah, in Jungle Cruise. And like there was the fight scene in Red Notice where they're fighting, um, you know, the, the actress's character. I'm not really good with uh, names for... Uh, Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot. And it just stretched the limits. Now, also, again, normally, I don't really care if someone who obviously shouldn't be able to fight someone is able to fight someone within a movie. Yeah. Or a video game or except, yeah. yeah, it's just it's make believe. But when the choreography and whatnot doesn't really even support that, 
you know, like when you hit someone and they just like fly away. And I'm like, okay, so it's okay to stretch the limits of believability. But when you're not doing the make believe in a way that kind of sells it, then I'm like, well, what am I watching really? You know, I'm almost watching like a couple kids on a playground, like play fighting. Yeah. Like the, um, one of the scenes that granted to me, I was like, okay, the banter and this is funny leading up to it, but, uh, and spoilers for anyone who gives a shit about red notice. Um, but the, all the uh, red notice diehards are going to spam us. Well, they're, they announced a few days ago, which again, this dates when we're recording this, but, um, they announced a few days ago, they're shooting two concurrent sequels to this movie. To Red Notice. To Red Notice. Um, wow. I mean, people were really hungry for content, like when it came out. Yeah, they were. But like, <laughs> there was a, um, you know, there's the scene where they're like in the uh, in a bullfighting coliseum and mm-hmm. Rock gets hit by a bull <laughs> <laughs> and then just kind of dusts himself off. And So the, the Brahma bull gets hit by a bull. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Like, All I, right. <laughs> It's, it's gotten to a point where like you know the fast and the furious movies also have this problem a little bit in that because all of the actors are stars they have it in their contract that their character cannot be the bad guy cannot be cannot like take a punch and fall down and not get back up and crack a joke um it's why like when you see there's one one of the fast and the furious is where like Vin Diesel has the same thing, obviously, because he's the the producer. Um, and he and Rock fight in a room, and it ends up with them like two immovable forces colliding in the air. Right? Like neither, like both of them hit each other at the same time, and then both of them fall back, and both of them get up at the same time. Like it's it's an impossible set of circumstances <laughs> because these guys have have uh, large egos and they they don't want to take a hit in a, in a fake make believe movie <laughs> yeah yeah they can't uh, they don't they want to look weak <laughs> yeah um yeah they can't they have to really sell the action hero sort of thing which is kind of like uh if you think about it within the lens of our our kind of past media consumption it's be like in the movie rambo if Rambo was in a movie with another Rambo. Yeah. So it's like, there really should only be one Rambo in an action movie. <laughs> you really can only do that, be that, yeah. <laughs> you know, because otherwise it's like, okay, I get it, Rambo's a badass. But it's like, okay, is everyone equally badass? Well, like, taking your point of Rambo, uh, the Expendables have that issue as well. <laughs> those movies now those movies are a little bit better about it because i feel like a lot of those guys are actually friends whereas Mm -hmm. my understanding is the rock and vin diesel just do not fucking get along (laughs) yeah it was really great um the little dipping into like conversation and etc because i don't know if you noticed recently like vin diesel tried to like publicly invite the rock back in and then The Rock was like, look, he already talked to me about this like earlier this year, and I told him no. And this is just an example of his manipulation that he's trying to use. And so I, in my mind, Dwayne Johnson is like, listen, I have my own franchise. I have my own shit. Fuck you and your little playground where I imagine, you know, Vin Diesel is like, you know, Fiat. He's, he's king there, you know, in that franchise. I mean, there, there is that. But also like pretty bold of him to assume that 
like i don't know if you've seen the rock's release schedule like on on wikipedia like he's good on work like he doesn't yeah. need more work <laughs> he's set <laughs> yeah whereas uh vin diesel's fast and furious is uh my understanding is the the last movie i i haven't seen it kind of really really stretched the limits of credulity with the whole space uh segment that they went through i would assume so just because like i've I've watched up through, I think, six, six or so. Um, and I fell off because the, the the reason that I even started watching these movies, well, other than beat because I was in high school and <laughs> big cargo vroom vroom fast, right? You, you did a lot um, of stuff in high school. We get it. Um, the, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the live action stunt work was originally the draw of like oh wow look at these guys go around this track or do this this uh you know sick flip in this car right mm -hmm. like even just looking at the trailer of the one that came out last um mm -hmm. so much of it is just cg now and it's like yeah. okay well then what are we like <laughs> Are, are we to believe that these guys are actually doing their stunts in space like Tom Cruise is? Yeah. You know, even, um, what is it, uh, the Fast Five, I was looking at the effects sequence scene, and apparently that that giant uh, bank vault that they rip out of the wall, yeah. like there's actually like a vehicle underneath that. Yeah. And it's like driving around, which lends like a little bit of weight, I think, to those scenes. Now, I imagine all of that, especially when it's like tumbling through, is like CG work. Oh yeah. But there's yeah, yeah. there's there's enough there to kind of anchor that to where you're yeah. just like, oh man, you know, it's it's a that bit of movie real. magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's tricking my head enough into thinking mm -hmm. that that's real. That's fine. Um, but yeah, just the the blatant CG of like we're going to space. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, and my, what what does he drive? Like a like a an old charger? Like. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. It's totally air air safe and yeah, et totally airtight. There, there's no Vacuum problems sealed. there. Well, it's, it's, not to uh, mention how he's getting the combustion for. <laughs> yeah, so I'm. I was talking to my wife a little bit and um, mostly talking about how some of her younger relations, like nieces and whatnot, and how they consume media. Yeah, just a majority of people now, even like I watch a lot of YouTube and etc. But I, I really don't like to watch a ton of it like on my phone or et cetera with like a little phone speaker. I might have like headphones in or, you know, show it on my iPad or if I'm sitting down at my, you know, computer with a large screen, I'll watch it there. But the majority of content watching, even by looking through content creators when they're talking about their metrics mm -hmm. is on phone. So I feel like I'm noticing like more now where, that's realized as part of like the the creation not not so much specifically for like the rock space scene because they i think they initially view that as you know that's going to show up on a big screen but when watching for like special effects or watching for like choreography and etc i'm noticing more now that it's almost like we've gone in reverse and this is a little bit of a digression but it's talking about content creation so i guess yeah. I'll, I'll go with it where if you remember the if you watch like old Star Trek episodes or anything from content from that period, you have the letterboxing because it's not meant for like a wide panoramic no, 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 view. It's not, yeah, it's meant for yeah. a little square. Yeah, little square. Nine 
Mm-hmm. Little cathode ray tube shooting yeah. some radiation at your eyeballs. <laughs> you know, that's why we all wear glasses now, probably. Um, and then you had, you know, you have uh, panoramic views. You got 16.9. And now things where media is, for the majority, like I've seen like YouTube and other content creators and even Netflix, they can see the metrics. The majority of content is seen on a tiny phone, you know, just yeah. on your phone, however big it is. So it's like the framing and the action, everything, everything has to read from something that can fit in your wallet. And so it's yeah. like we went, we went, uh, we were close in with some good amount of real estate. Then we went out again and now we've drawn back in again. And I, yeah. I don't, I don't think was the way media is going that we're going to, um, you know, go back out again, really, unless, uh, 3d hologram projection takes off or some other new media makes that up. Cause it's just, it's just yeah. ease. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and also it sounds like you're making the argument that Quibi came along a few years too early. Well, Quibi came along a few years too early. And I think there was something about, there was something about uh, the investment strategy related to that. I, yeah. I can't remember. I was a little more alert to it when, when it, rose and then after it fell which i mean to be honest i always thought it was really it was a a gimmick but it was a cool gimmick mm -hmm. um i never subscribed to it obviously um but yeah it's I, I feel like it's an idea that was maybe a few years too early or a few years too late you know you know what's funny about quibi because i've i've thought about this touching on that um, if you remember, um, vines, right? Those little six second, yeah, yeah, little yeah, second yeah. videos, right? Mm -hmm. So vine, a lot of heyday, a lot of popularity, etc. I guess they weren't able to really demonetize it the right way, even though they had tons of traction, like you can still, you can still see vine compilations and, and etc. really bite-sized bits of media mm -hmm. and watching the way that my wife and other people consume like TikToks, like it's the same sort of size of content format. Usually, you know, it's longer than six seconds, 30 seconds, whatever, to illustrate like a little slice. And then it serves you up like another little slice, you know, in, in much that format. But I think that something like Quibi could succeed if the delivery vehicle was improved. And I noticed too, because I, I haven't signed up for TikTok and whatnot, the, even with sharing like a TikTok with someone else, after you see the video, you get an instant like loop into another video that gives you just a little snippet of it enough to allow, Hey, you should really buy into this, you know, cause then you can keep on watching. It doesn't have to end, you know, you can just keep on consuming content and it's, it's so passive in structure because yep. you can watch a TikTok and then just another one will just play right after it. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're not looking for something else. So it's like the content delivery system and structure is almost like what you would, um, you know, need. Anyways, there are two different kinds of media, but I feel like something like Quibi could work if yeah. the delivery vehicle was maybe changed and, you know, maybe it was too early. Maybe Vine was too early as well. Yeah, yeah. I am, um, honestly, I feel like the the way things are going, I I will go into this future kicking and screaming, but I, I honestly think that you're going to see a big push into buying into the whole metaverse mm -hmm. uh, thing <laughs> that mm -hmm. Zuckerberg and, and 
all the uh, the tech bros are trying to push everyone into. I I will go into that kicking and screaming. That sounds like a nightmare world. <laughs> well, I feel like the thing is that uh, you can you can monetize and commercialize uh, clicks, uh, views, um, purchases, uh, information from metrics. Now, what else? What's the last kind of bastion? Do you want to monetize? Oh, I would love to monetize every, like people's reality. If we can monetize their actual reality, it's so gross. Well, like in the think about thing- it. Think about it. You could be in a digital room, right? Be a digital room. I could be in the metaverse, right? Yeah. It's totally free to us, just like the way Facebook is totally free. In air yeah. quotes, I'm air quoting. I think yeah. the sound of air quotes should be or, or some, something similar. Uh, maybe just a sequence of like bull and shit together. And that would be the air quotes. But um, you could be in a totally free metaverse, in air quotes, and then you could uh, be sitting and then your actual desk and whatnot there. But there's like some product placement. There's like a phantom Coca-Cola just floating on your desk, you know, next to you. And it's like, hey, if you want some actual Coca-Cola, we already have your pay information. LinkedIn, just reach out and grab that fake Coca-Cola and we'll have somebody we'll come and deliver it to your house. To your door yeah, right now. exactly. 15 minutes away. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's so bad. I hate that future. <laughs> I do well, like, and, and the the shitty thing is, like, and this I like happens. I like giving I like giving you apocalypse scenarios because then that's when the good stuff comes out. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so the the most ridiculous thing that have you ever read Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash? Mm-mm. So Snow Crash is a cyberpunk um, book. Mm-hmm. He literally, and this is from like the early night, like I want to say like 1990, maybe. Um, he literally coins the term the metaverse to describe this sort of thing. And when when a lot of this online chatter started happening. Like Neil Stevenson spoke up. It was like, I feel like people misconstrued what I was saying <laughs> when I used the term metaverse. <laughs> um, because yeah, like it's it's like most science fiction, it's warning again. Hey, don't do this. This is a nightmare hellscape. You, Cautionary you, you don't tales. Want this. You don't want this. Tech bros read it and go, we can monetize it. <laughs> We'll do so it great. exactly. It's a blueprint. Mm-hmm. It's not a warning. It's a blueprint. <laughs> it's not a cautionary tale. It's a business model. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like your uh, meme you shared, uh, where you have all these, you know, these archetypes and these characters from different film and media who are now like idolized. You know, like Joker. Oh yeah, and... you missed the point starter pack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So I guess that's that's me for me, me, me. What what, what do you got? <laughs> I think most of my me, me, me was just spent in uh, basically hijacking your me, me, me. So <laughs> I'm not going to slam in with another hour, but I guess oh, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll just give little bits. Um, yeah. So content, man. What else has everybody been doing uh, through these very fantastically terrible pandemic years other than consuming content yeah so yeah yeah it's 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 been uh it's been something so uh i finished and watched um 
the whole Wheel of Time series. I did that with my wife. That was an interesting watch. Um, How is that? I thought it was pretty pretty entertaining. Okay. I, th- I think the issue is, uh, which I've talked with you before, and I think it's it's like this with a lot of fandoms, is if you expect a one-to-one translation of your own headcanon yeah. and your own head experiences to the screen, you're going to be disappointed. Like it, even sure. if even if you go and read like the Lord of the Rings books, uh, you know the the trilogy series, and then you go watch Peter Jackson's films, if you come in there with the expectation of like translating your head canon, it's not going to work. You yeah. know, um, that doesn't mean those aren't great. You know, and they they kind of go above and beyond. You know, a lot of what other people's conception what their imagination could construe because you have so many great like artisans and like craftsmen and just like uh, you know filmmakers getting there and committing to, to tell a story uh really i was just um happy to see a little bit of what i had known from the books translated on on screen so for me i was watching it more like okay a Cliff Notes version of what I've read is going to be on the screen. Right. Uh, and there's going to be some changes and modifications. Some of them, yeah, uh, I don't get why, um, you know, Perrin has to have a fridge wife, you know. And the, <laughs> in the, I believe in the first episode, like, he accidentally, like, ends up. And, I've heard and, people refer to, to what goes on with Perrin being like, why? Why did they have to do that? <laughs> yeah, because... And, in all fairness, though, um, Perrin, through a good part of the first book, doesn't really have much of a purpose. Like, he yeah. he learns about, like, his, his, like, this affinity that he might have. Like, he has this eye thing going on. But I think, really, on in later books, like, he has actual interaction with someone who literally runs around with wolves. You know, and who lives that life, who's fully committed to it. Yeah. Um, and who's just like given into it. So there's more development of that later on. So I think they were trying to give him something to chew on from like a character aspect. Because otherwise he's just, you know, in the books, he's like a big, they kind of talk, he's like a big clumsy dude, you know, yeah. and he just like bumps into things and, you know, he's kind of bumbling and he doesn't know like his own strength. Um you know, and there's some more interesting stuff that happens to his character later, but uh, at least for me, it wasn't. I, I don't remember him being like a shining star of the first book, even though in the storyline, the narrative uh, perspective shifts a lot through all the books to where, like, yeah. you have like you know, it's a fantasy thing that happens. You you shift from character perspective um, in order to like cover a story from different angles. Um, that's always something I think when they try to adapt um, fantasy into uh, film and like film media. That's always something they sort of initially struggle with because you don't really have like that intake of like first person perspective from every character. Like you can't really do it that way. So you can't really experience things like that. So it's more like we're centered on a group of characters and then different things sort of happen with them. You know, you don't get, like, access to, like, that internal sort of thing. Um, I mean, you don't even really get access through the first season. Like, Perrin has this change happening with him, but it's not like he's like, oh, this change. You know, you don't really get any kind of, like, internal struggle 
that he's experiencing with that. One, I think, because it doesn't really develop a lot. Um, but you have like the ways that are in uh, the first season. And there's a long stretch in the books, at least from like a pacing perspective, where they're like go navigating through the ways and they're all really depressed and like down because this environment is like imbued with the Dark One's force. But from a uh, series perspective, especially like as I don't think it had maybe eight episodes or something like that. Um, they don't really have a lot of time to like tack in on that. So it's like, okay, we'll get in and we'll get out. We'll try to communicate what they were communicating here and then we'll move on. Um, I'd say the thing I found most disappointing was really the ending of the series, um, which has to relate to um, the fact that, you know, and you know, this is there's spoiler warnings everywhere. I'll just put them at the beginning of the podcast. You know, Rand has to interact uh, with um, someone who he thinks is the Dark One, but but isn't really. Uh, it's just like one of his like minions. You know, someone who's kind of with him through the circle of the time and connected to Vernon and all that yada yada. Um, but their fight is really anticlimactic. Like he just uses like the little totem to focus his energy through the force. And then he shoots him with an, like, I think like an arm beam and that's it. So it's like, Oh, I guess you guys ran out of budget or didn't want to do something that's cooler than this. Um, Cause I'm that trying to remember. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to remember if that interaction comes back later in the books. Cause I know there's the sky fight, you know, the big sky fight that Rin has. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think that's in one of the later books, like maybe after, that character like gets burned or something because he's not actually dead. I can't. I can't remember actually. Ba- Bathamil or Bathemil or it's yeah. it's got to be at least a decade and a half since <laughs> for those books. To be honest, <laughs> so I, I thought the ending fight was really really anticlimactic. Like they spent more, I think, more budget and time in some of the other scenes that that you'd see. The Trollocs were fun. Uh, they looked kind of weird. Uh, the Midral. The uh, you know the I guess the faded ones the is the shadowless I'm I'm trying to remember their other names um, they were fun they weren't as imposing as they feel in the books um, and oh, yeah. you didn't you didn't really get a lot of fighting interaction with them I don't oh. think so it's interesting and then the haunted city Pat and Fane. Like that's a whole big thing in the first book. Like you realize just how evil he is and how connected he is yeah. to the evil of the city. I do um, remember that. <laughs> so there's there's critique, and that's the thing. Like that first book moves so quick through the universe and like has all these things that it tries to show you that it just it runs through, you know. Uh, and so it's just really energetic, and so that keeps you wanting to like read and and whatnot uh, through quickly. So. My wife enjoyed watching it with me, um, you know, without having into that background. And I liked seeing some of the stuff that I originally just had in my imagination on screen. And that's about the bulk of it. You know, I'm not really going to grind an axe or anything. I feel like if you want something more to that, you can just go read the books, you know. So that's that's my feeling. Well, now, did they get uh, approved for like a second season? I think so, because the the guy who plays um, Matt Cawthon, he was yeah. recasted. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I think they recasted him. I'm not sure why, 
maybe there was some contract thing or some conflict or they didn't like him. Maybe he ate too much from the, the buffet trays on set. Um, it, it would be weird to be in his role because they, in, in the first book, like you do see him sort of withdraw from Rand's character. And so it, there's not really a lot of empathizing with him in that regard, but you see him be kind of sickly uh, as well. And then you get further development of the character in, in other books in the series. But throughout the whole series, he's just very withdrawn. He's not very connective um, because that's the role like he's playing, you know, for what's going on with the character. So I'd hate to think that, you know, he didn't engender himself at all. <laughs> he's just doing the role too well. And uh, they just let him go. But I'm sure there was some other, you know, reason. Why that sure. occurred. So it was okay. Uh, I just enjoyed seeing it. And that's, that's pretty much it in, in that regards. I won't really be too critical of it because um, there was stuff that it was like, oh, cool. My wife can see this and I, I don't have to make her read the books in order to like <laughs> share this moment. To be in the same headspace. <laughs> yeah. And the, the surprise uh, at the end where, you know, Rand is the, uh, the chosen one or, or whatnot yeah. is, or the dragon reborn, you know, was an actual surprise for her. Cause like in the books, like the, that happens at the beginning and then you get some introduction from like his previous life and him going mad and like killing all these people that are near him and like the, um, you know, the prologue. Um, and then, you know, you see like this birth and you're like, Oh, okay. Obviously this is going to be him. He's got red hair, etc. It's not that far of a stretch um, narrative wise, but they, they make mentions of it, but not enough to where like, if you weren't like just keying in on like, Oh, are they dropping hints? You, you know, just a casual viewer might not catch on it. So she enjoyed that. And uh, okay. so, yeah, I enjoyed sharing it with her in that, in that regard. So that's that. Um, yeah, that's uh, I, I think that's a good good buttoning up point for. OK, yeah, I mean, especially an hour. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah okay well so so uh yeah i have some some notes beforehand um for this uh and then obviously supplement where needed <laughs> mm. um i don't know how much how much you were able to to do about the the kind of history or whatnot that's kind of my jam yeah <laughs> because I, feel... I, I like diving into the like fiddly bits that no one else really <laughs> focuses on yeah, I think some of the some of the sections are um, really interesting uh, to dump in, especially if when you when you realize that like this thing within media that you consumed was influenced by this thing or this action. Yeah. Um, so when it kind of like shines a new light, um, or stuff about like the background and production, I think for me, I was like, oh, I could, I mean, I could do like a copy paste or a copy dump. And it's like, well, let me just let me just try to talk about it from the perspective of, you know, how I feel, how it sits within the series. So that's kind of my my thing. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, let me um let me let me jump through the history and then we can talk about the the way we experienced this this game then. Mhm. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. So, um yeah, I guess the uh the original release uh since we'll we'll do the discussion on the original and the remake um the original uh came out in september of 99 uh in america um 
set 24 hours before Resident Evil 2, just for anyone that's never played this before. Although, if you've never played it before, why are you listening? <laughs> but uh, yeah, after after the uh, second Resident Evil was, was uh, released, um, Capcom immediately went to work on, on making spinoffs. Um, so I, I found a design doc referenced where the original story for this was recycled for one of the Game Boy games and reskinned for one of the Game Boy games. Um, you were originally going to be playing as Hunk, uh, retrieving some of the G-Virus on a cruise ship. Um, Sony announces PS2. Uh, they immediately go, oh, okay, well, this game is not going to be ready for that system. Uh, and then Hideki Kamiya uh, had his team moved to Resident Evil 4. Um, and then the, the third canonical entry for the series, uh, was, was, uh, lost track of my notes. Yeah. Uh, and a third canonical story was designed for the PlayStation. Uh, it's mainly a mishmash of assets from one and two. Um, even, even though it happens throughout an entire city, uh, they just kind of used a lot of the skins that they had already sitting around for one from one and two um jill was supposed to be a new character uh they changed her to keep the game within the canon of the the uh, the original series um the city environments uh they were thinking led to more varied locations uh capcom originally wanted it to be more more uh action oriented uh which i think works because they they did add the the mechanic for doing the like i guess it's a 180 degree sidestep or you're flipping back around like that would have really been a game changer in the first and second one had you had that <laughs> rather oh, yeah. than the the bullshit tank controls um they uh we're developing this one at the same time as Code Veronica. Um, the the only reason that this game is called Resident Evil 3 is because the first two had been on PlayStation. Um, and, you know, they had a tie with Sony and, and their system. Um, so they, they made this one the canonical one and Code Veronica sits somewhere in the timeline i'm i'm not entirely sure where it sits to be honest um but one of one of the things when i was wikipedia skimming that stuck out to me especially considering how large um teams are that make triple a games um is that there were only 20 people working on this game and then they closer to release i guess in order to kind of combat some of the crunch they shot the team up to 50 people but i mean i know at the time triple a wasn't really an idea uh, in games but like i would call this a triple a game the fact that it had 20 to 50 people working on it is kind of strange <laughs> <laughs> like it seems like a really small team now. Um so game rankings has this as an 88% like out of 100. Um 
that's sounds about right. Um, at least in my opinion. Um, <clears throat> generous, overly generous. Generous, real okay. Well, so so they ported this to Windows and Dreamcast, and um, you know, with Dreamcast, they they put more more freebies and costumes and stuff in it. Um, the GameCube port. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It apparently had very very bad reviews. <laughs> <laughs> like no one likes any of the ports and this got an 88 percent. i remember really really enjoying it um uh, because yeah. I, I played it i want to say that i got it that that christmas of 99 mm-hmm. um and so like christmas day me and my brother would would like trade the controller and take turns <laughs> Yeah, like, I'd say I'd caveat I'd caveat that and say that at least for myself I think the original one so the original iteration not the remake I think does some things stronger and fits better within like a timeline of games that would have been there at the time um but yeah if you're still going through your um kind of background history continue Oh no that's that's it I'm, oh, that I'm was done. it. Okay. Well, um, yeah, it's very, very quick and dirty. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, it's interesting to talk about three uh, in the same way that it was about two, um, just due to the remake nature. And it's almost like yeah. you you need to talk about um, both and sort of couch them. I think within the context of the gaming landscape that they entered in. So I'd say initially playing RE three. I'm more positive on that experience than I am yeah. playing the RE3 remake. Um, to I would mu- agree with that. Yeah. Cause it, there's a lot of, there's for me, there's things that, um, that I think um, I'm trying to think which, which direction I want to kind of approach. Um, so let's, I, I would say because we're going to talk about both games, I'll just talk about them both within the context of themselves and each other rather than like honing in on one and then flipping to the other, just kind of like compare and contrast. Okay. So I think the mechanics that are evident and that you can see from like a puzzle based or um, an interaction based, like the way you interact with nemesis in the original one where you have uh, like a choice mechanic, sort of like a, you know, the, an early quick time of its heyday because you had to make a choice between the two. And so you're kind of like, okay, what do I do? Do I run over here? Do I try to fight him? And so that mechanic kind of like choose your own adventure was um, fun. It was an interesting mechanic, Uh, especially you have that tension. You've never met this character before. You haven't seen this mechanic, especially the first time you see it uh, within this game. You're like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, whoa, this is cool. Um, And it's like, oh, well, I don't know. Which one should you do? and so getting to replay and choose one or the other or live with kind of the consequences, uh, that's a fun mechanic. It's one they don't have in the remake. No, um, they don't. Well, like, and, and the, the fun funny thing about that, this goes to show you the state of gaming, I think, at the time, is mm-hmm. RE3, if I remember right, maybe I either wasn't paying attention or I was just Xing through it because I wanted to get to the game, but I didn't realize you had a heel turn. And mm-hmm. my brother was the one that actually figured it out. And I was like, whoa, 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 how did you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had to sit there and figure out how to do this one very simple today mechanic. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was just 
mind blowing to have have a way to just immediately run away from something. Oh yeah, the one eighty. Yeah. Yeah. So they you have the the dodge mechanic, which from what I remember, and then going to review it um, and talking about this game game's aspects, even when it originally came out, it was a it intended to be a more actiony version of RE2 yeah. Uh, yeah. to like build on that and to make it more kind of action oriented. So you have things um, like the heel turn, which I'm not sure if that's in, I think that's in the original too. Um, Cause I remember, I think I remember doing a 180, at least when I played it on the N64, but I could be wrong on that respect. Oh yeah. Like I think it's, it's on the N64. It's not on the PlayStation. I don't think. Okay. And uh, so you have the dodge mechanic, which I don't remember working that well in the original release. And <laughs> from checking with other folks now on like original hardware and whatnot, it, it doesn't, it didn't work that well uh, no. overall. Baby steps. <laughs> but it's there, you know, it's there in an attempt to try to, you know, if you're going to deal with uh, a greater number of zombies um, in an environment and having to like pass through and deal with Nemesis, who's, you know, um, an enemy you can take down, you know, if you if you chose to do so. And if you had an idea that taking him down would give you some kind of uh, weaponry or sort of upgrades, you know, if you were just coming in blind, like you hadn't read into the gaming magazine or, you know, in, in some other strategy guide. Um, so, you know, if you decided to try to avoid him, you know, you could try to do, uh, you know, dodge and, and whatnot. So it being more action oriented, uh, and having those mechanics, like the choice mechanics, um, the dodge, um, the fact that you did get to explore like a city environment, uh, that's not something you really did in RE2 um, to a real extent. Like you run through like outside of the, the police um, station and then you run into the police station and then that starts the game. So you're already in like a, an environment. But with RE3, when I fired that up and started playing it, you know, after playing RE2 back in the time, it's like, oh, I get to explore the city environment outside. And so the novelty of that was like, oh, that's really cool, you know. Um, and the environments were different. You know, you weren't in like, a, you know, a mansion or a police station. And you weren't like enclosed in, in that sense. I mean, it's not like a big open world. But so... I think all those things talking positively and then getting uh, the different bosses um, and then some of the enemies and sort of those interactions and then getting to see. Um, I feel like a lot of folks, especially if that was if two was their first game or three was their first Resident Evil game, they most unless they were, you know, of a previous generation of gamers or were gaming at that time, I guess to use a non-offensive term. Um, they would have played RE1 and then 2 and 3 I'm of the gaming generation where I wasn't going to play RE1 Uh, it wasn't I didn't have a PlayStation Um, I didn't have the PlayStation disc and um, so 2 was my first experience and then 3 so then contrast it in in that respect Um, so there's a lot that uh, really shined positively on, on me on the original one Contrasting that with the remake, I, I was looking through and thinking to myself, okay, why why don't I really like the remake um, you know, as much? And there's a lot of people with a lot of different opinions about it, but just speaking... I have some ideas. <laughs> yeah. 
just speaking for myself, you know, I was like, okay, give my personal kind of perspective on it. Um, So with the remake, you do have some of the good stuff that they did in the RA2 remake, where the character interactions are a little more fleshed out. Um, You have Carlos and Jill. They have some really funny banter, et cetera. And, uh, you know, you have some of these uh, action movie sort of tropes with with, uh, Nikolai, you know, He's obviously a bad guy (laughs) (laughs) when you first meet him because he fits within that action movie trope of like, he may as well be twirling uh, his, his mustache while doffing his black hat. Yeah. And he's (laughs) got, he has a foreign accent. Of course he's a bad guy. His name is Nikolai. Exactly. Anything good come from a Nikolai. (laughs) You know, it fits within the American action movie tropes, like to a T. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I think three has some of that and has the original, uh, not the remake to where it has these novelties, these new elements that kind of keep you intrigued and you want, you want more of that experience. You've had two. Now you want a second helping, you know? Um, but with the remake, I think for myself, they, they, uh, bolstered up some of the character stuff, but, from a storyline perspective with the character connections, there's really not a lot there, you know, uh, with two, you have like, uh, you know, you have the daughter and you have, um, you know, have the scientist who, you know, wanted to keep the, the virus, um, to himself and to sell it to the U S military. You have the, you know, um, you know, sort of distant mother, you have Ada, you have Leon, um, and so you have, you have a couple different interactions there. You know how you have Claire, uh, in her search for, you know, her brother, um, you have, um, you know, Marvin and his interaction that gets fleshed out quite a bit to where like, he's someone that, Oh, you feel for him, you know, from, from a storyline perspective and just like a game interaction perspective, but there's not a lot there in the bones of RE3 if they don't bolster that up, like you have Nikolai as kind of this lukewarm bad guy. Yeah. And then you have nemesis who walks around going stars. <laughs> so it's like, and then you have uh, this sort of, uh, you know, umbrella entity. Um, but the thing is the thing that three is missing the most for me, I think in, con- in comparison, um, you could go remake, but I'm, I'm just going to go remake. And then also three as well, um, even though I think the original shines a little more, is that three is missing mystery. Um, oh, and I yeah. feel like one has mystery with the Spencer mansion uh, and like, what the hell are all these contraptions? What is going on here? What What is this uh, umbrella thing that's going on? Uh, two uh, has mystery and like, okay, what is this police station doing? How do I get out of here? What are the real plans you're finding out with the characters? Like you're finding out what's going on with the characters like Leon and Claire both. Yeah. When you get to three, Jill knows what the fuck is going on. (laughs) She knows that umbrella started all this shit and you, you have an idea of why nemesis is chasing Jill. It's even more like apparent in the remake. Like he busts into her apartment complex uh, and he's like, you get, you know, get a moan of stars. 
Brad calls and says like, Hey, he's coming after you. Um, (laughs) So there's no mystery there. Um, And even with the UBCS uh, that comes in, you know, that Carlos is a part of, you know, there's no mystery who the villain is. Like I was mentioning before Nikolai. Yeah. Uh, There's no mystery at what the bad guy is. It's nemesis. And initially, like one of the first things you're trying to do, at least I'm going to talk on the remake because that's more fresh. You know, you're trying to get this uh, train to work so you can get people out of the city. Um, And so getting people out of the city is like your main purpose. Um, And so there's there's no mystery there. Like you're playing a game. You know what's going on. Uh, And so there's there's not a lot of discovery in that sense. Um, especially if you've played the original, like, you know, you're going to go into like a hospital environment. The remake doesn't have the clock tower aspect, which I, I get, you know, it wasn't like the original RE team that was actually doing the remake. It was like farmed out to another company, um, which has been talked about ad nauseum. So I won't go into that too much, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's for me with the mechanics and the story and everything, there's not a lot of mystery to three. Um, and to, to touch upon in four, I feel like four does have mystery, even though four builds on the action element. Um, when after playing three and then getting to experience four, there's a lot of questions. There's even a lot of questions now, if you think about it in retrospect, like why was Leon hired to do this job? <laughs> and he's the only person being sent on this mission conceivably. Um, how does he I know mean, the president? <laughs> I wouldn't call that a mystery <laughs> so much as a lack of imagination on the screenwriter. So, but there's still like a mystery there when you're experiencing it from oh, like yeah, a, yeah, a player yeah. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you meet uh, the, uh, the Ganados who are like taken over by Los Plagos, that first interaction where you have with a uh, Ganado, you're like, okay, why is he just like talking to himself? And he just tells me to like, you know, get the hell out of here, you know? Oh, why is he attacking me? Oh, there's a quick time event. Uh, (laughs) Oh, why are there bodies like hanging up here? Like what's going on in this village? You have mystery right off the bat. And three doesn't have any of that. And so I feel like for me, that is what three is lacking in the most in comparison, at least as as far as the remake. Um, I know there's a lot of speed runners that like three because like you get like, well, it's very short. Yes, it's mm-hmm. it's because um, I was looking at this for our our uh, spoilers or grab bag episode, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, the the remake of three is by far the shortest of the can- canonical games. Like it's only mm-hmm. six hours long. Yeah, yeah. It's and... it's um, it's got a much tighter story. I think part of why there's no mystery in this is because of how how triple a games are made today mm-hmm. um you know the remake was made at the like its development overlapped with the remake of the second one so they had no idea how the second one had turned out they were just going to crank out two of these back to back um and i think that shows in the, in the second one it's a little bit more milk toast um it's just kind of what you expect a remake to look like if that makes sense. Like, you mean yeah, the RE2 remake? The RE3 remake. Like, oh, it's, yes. it's a little bit more just kind of like bland. Well, you see, yeah, you see like a reusing of the assets. Um, yeah. 
even some of the mechanic stuff, like uh, I noticed too, looking through um, the RA3 remake again, I don't know if it's because there's going to be more assets on screen or because like it's a bigger environment. Like they're not limiting you to like, uh, you know, a small police station, right? They have to have more draw distance. But when you're shooting the enemies in three, like they don't have like the severing of limbs that you had in two. Like you can't like shoot like an arm or anything. And I think that's probably like a technology thing, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and in terms of like level design, I will say, I think RE3 remakes level design is much, much more varied and better, I think, in some regards. Because if you think about how both 1, 2, and 3, for the most part, in the original, like, they're just, and it's, it's a technological limitation, but it's just boxes connected to each other, right? Like, you go Mm -hmm. to this screen, then you go to this screen. But there's no, like, exploration between them. Like, it's mm-hmm. more of, like, the Metroid version of, like, here's a box, here's a box, here's a box three back that you can go to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the remake, there are larger areas with multiple points of entry and exit. Yeah, yeah. RE2... It's a little bit more open world. Um, the original yeah. RE3 is, like, boxes connected by hallways, if that makes sense. Like, they gave it that city feel. You're just going down an alleyway with no yeah. threat though but it's yeah. like here's a box it makes the the world feel different well, i think our, our re2 re- remake and even the original i'd say talking on that is like the environments and stuff were made to impress also yeah. made within the technological limitations but they're also constructed with the puzzles in mind where i yeah. feel like the yeah. remake wasn't really constructed with puzzles the puzzles in mind i don't even remember much in the way of puzzles I think they. I mean, there's to... there's very simple puzzles like match the club key to the yeah. club lock. <laughs> yeah. So it's not really a puzzle. Yeah, and then there's the little switch thing you do to get the uh, the train to go, yeah. like to move the the little segments to try to get the electricity run through, and so uh, it's it has less of that kind of tying a re. I guess for me that that ends up being that there's less of a reason that ties all these paths together other than I'm running to get this thing and I'm running to get this thing. Um, and you know, there's zombies or something in between, you know, or there's like a different variation of the zombie in between. So, um, yeah, I do wonder if they had enough time with the overlap to get fan reception from two to where people are like, Oh my God, Mr. X is so imposing. I don't even want to play this game anymore. (laughs) <laughs> so my understanding there's people that like as soon as mr x came out they stopped playing because they couldn't handle how intense that experience was initially i will say that was very intense and in, yes in two. yes um playing the three the opening um mm-hmm. because and again spoilers for the remake um that opening scene where you have the nightmare and then you wake up and then the real horror starts yeah. is fantastic yeah it's a good it's a strong entrance <laughs> Yes. It's a good entrance. Um, You're running through the hallway. You don't, you feel like it's more like a scripted experience, which is, uh, you know, the same kind of thing. And you get like a Nathan Drake, you know, kind of thing. You got to run through, get through this environment, but you're like, oh, this is really cool. Um, Yeah. Uncharted 4 actually was one of the things I had in my notes mm -hmm. (laughs) since, since you mentioned it of, of a lot of the action that's in the 
RE3 remake is yeah. that a lot of it is is scripted and meant to feel intimidating and threatening but ultimately you're going to get through it because you're the main character yeah it, the thing is though like I, I feel uh talking about the re3 remake uh specifically that those the action elements are they come across as um if if this is supposed to be a more action heavy game they don't come across as well like it it feels like it's it's got one foot in the past and it tries to move one foot into the future, but it doesn't push far enough ahead to the future to really get to where like it's doing the action thing effectively. Yeah, I can see that. Because like the boss battles, um, to talk about Nemesis, um, Mr. X doesn't really have uh, an initial boss battle until you get some of the later segments where like he's swiping at you and two, etc. But it felt like you you hit the the boss battle segment um, with Nemesis kind of early. And then you have, you have that segment where he's like shooting you with a rocket launcher, which it really, <laughs> it's, it's just a series of quick time events, really, where you're just dodging yeah. these, uh, you know, um, which I have to say, I really dislike quick time events. Like, yeah. <laughs> we've moved past that. Like that's no longer a neat little trick. <laughs> you know, when it's not like, oh, you're going to die or et cetera, um, that's fine. Um, or when they're not uh, constructed in a way that really takes away from the game experience. If you're just trying to show a cinematic, but you're trying to like keep the player still invested by like pressing a button, that's okay, as long as it doesn't feel too cheap, at least for me. Um, uh, like the... Um, but other other segments were done well, like the initial segment where you're in a car and like you see her and like she rams into them and then I think they fall off of that parking garage or whatever. So that's a little bit early in the game. But then your other interactions, like that rocket launcher segment, where I was just like, "What? What is this? Like, what <laughs> am I doing? Why am I playing this?" Because um, there's not a lot of interaction with him. It's not like you're going to fight him. You literally just have to run away. Then you get other fighting segments, like where you're in that big mechanical area and he's like running around you. Um, not the one where you're outside, like in the city. But it's funny that there's two segments in the game where he's literally just running around you like a dog that's gotten off leash. And you have to try to shoot him as he's circling you. And so those boss segments, I don't really find engaging or like interesting in a mechanics kind of way. So it's like, if you were trying to make this action-y, um, those things don't shine. And so it's like, okay, well, well, why am I playing this? If it's not a spooky game, if it's not like, uh, if the action isn't really delivering for me, then what's, what's this game trying to deliver really? So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. I think we talked about this in the RE2 remake section, but, um, mm -hmm. It's it's really wild to me that they were able to build this in the second one in the RE engine. Mm -hmm. um, because like I'm looking at the RE engine games that they've they've used for this, and like it, obviously they developed it for seven, mm -hmm. um, used it on two and three. They apparently used it for Devil May Cry five and Ghost mm -hmm. and Goblins Resurrection and Monster Hunter Rise. Yeah, <laughs> like all of those are very very different games. I. I, 
don't know how it's an engine for all of them, but like it's very weird to me that they have an engine for a first person game and then they use it for third person over the shoulder type. Yeah. Setups. Yeah, interesting. Like two and three. Like if it's, you've, it's very strange. If you've seen uh, to delve into the engine bit just for like half a second, if you've seen Monster Hunter Rise on the Switch and you're thinking, at least thinking to myself watching the gameplay, I was like, how are they making this many polygons and like this kind of action oriented a game where you're playing with other people conceivably online run on the switch because the switch is like 2012 level hardware. And so (laughs) the engine must be really optimized for the way it like loads in views or something like that, you know, like passive viewing, like depending on where you're viewing, like it's only rendering that little slice, which is, not just something limited to the RE engine, but it is amazing how flexible uh, it's been utilized. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I, it sounds like what I'm hearing, you, like me, prefer, of the two, prefer the original to the remake. Yeah, I'd say if we're going to talk about like original experience. Yeah. So, um, like if I was going to talk about original experience between RE2 uh, and then the remake of RE2, they probably hit pretty close to the same. Just because that experience was just like so moving. Yeah. Originally playing it and then playing the remake and being like, wow, this isn't colored by at least a, a nostalgic lens because I'm experiencing this for the first time and I'm being yeah. really critical of it. And, and it's like, wow, this is really impressing me. Right. Whereas um, this doing the flip with RE3 and then the RE remake, it's it doesn't hit anything like in the same way. Uh, I remember, I remember hitting the end of the game, reaching the ending for the remake, and then being like, "Wow!" and just feeling. I mean, a lot of people worked on it. I'm really appreciative of their work. I obviously bought the game, so I appreciate it in that way financially. But yeah. just kind of being disappointed by the experience. Sure. So. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I with with the uh, RE3 remake, I I probably played through the first two or three hours, and then I was just like, mm, I don't need to see the rest of this. I'll like I'll go on YouTube and watch video <laughs> clips from this this point out. It it was it was kind of underwhelming, mm-hmm. um, in yeah. a way that the and and again, it has to do with me being adult an adult and not having as much time on my hands. And me opening up a Christmas present <laughs> and then spending the next day playing through this game. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, I, I will say it's funny that one of the complaints that I've seen about the remake being too short uh, is a thing. Because uh, when I was looking up how long to beat, like times to beat, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's exactly as it takes exactly as long to beat re3 the the three make as it does to beat the original resident evil 2 mm-hmm. both of those are six hour games yeah so like i i feel like a lot of the the like bad impressions that people were giving it don't really hold up because like at the end of the day i don't think the game's length matters one way or another because like obviously re2 is like one of the most beloved games out there yeah. so honestly length of time i i don't i don't think anyone really gives a shit 
I think quality really matters. I think, yeah. uh, and, and the impression that it gets through there. I know with uh, the original, and even with RA2 Remake, I took my time with that game and walking around and experiencing it. Um, so I think I beat it in like 15, 16 hours um, just because I wanted to like go to different paths and want to go around and try this thing and then try out this uh, different interaction and then see, oh, does he always, does uh, Mr. X always come out in this situation and just playing around with that mechanic. Um, and uh, so I, I definitely had a more full experience with a game that you can, oh, yeah. you can crit path it, you know, much quicker than that if you're just trying to get through. But I think, oh, um, yeah, yeah. I think it was one of those, it's, it's a critique that gets put in where it's like, and I also felt like the experience of RE3 was short, but I think that's because there wasn't really much for me to go around and explore and like, uh, yeah, the environments look larger, mm -hmm. like they, they, they look more impressive and look larger. And then you realize, Oh wait, I can't get into this door. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a door like it's just part of the wall <laughs> yeah and then you know they took out the clock tower segment which people have talked about for a bit um which yeah that that's missing content it probably meant they could focus on other aspects of the game uh, sure. a little more um but it's more like uh no one expects the re games um to be long long campaigns you know no one expects like 50 plus hours oh no game. yeah like the only ones like there's only three games that have broken like the 10 hour mark yeah and part of why i like the series so much honestly mm -hmm. um so i think because the experience wasn't like as fulfilling for that period of time it's like ah oh, it was too short there wasn't enough there there wasn't yeah. enough content <laughs> kind of gets tacked into there yeah um you know because it didn't really want to replay it whereas you know re2 i was like oh yeah i could replay this and you know i did claire's campaign which in the remake doesn't really differ all that much like it does in the original from what what i've looked into again um as far as like your environment and stuff like that so yeah i think that's that's my perspective on i think the remake and the original kind of um kind of out there yeah mm -hmm. okay well um i guess with that then uh we'll we'll talk about re4 next time and mm -hmm. uh the current book club book is brandon sanderson's elantris 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 um his first one if you look him up on wikipedia <laughs> that's his first book uh i think it's his first to be published let me double check oh, okay. that now that you ask mm -hmm. um before the the neck bearding starts and yeah before out. people send emails um i I'll mean these ha these episodes haven't even gone live yet and i'm sure we've gotten emails <laughs> yelling at us for being wrong um it's like a spider yeah it was his thing. first first uh, published uh professionally published mm -hmm. novel someone's going to be like ah oh, well actually there was a fanzine he wrote into and it was <laughs> technically published in his local uh local circle there yeah that doesn't count <laughs> <laughs> that don't count jack uh -huh. so great yeah yeah so uh yeah we'll be here next time with re4 um, i look i look forward for to telling <laughs> zach how wrong he is about re4 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I can't wait for the uh, the emails we'll get on that one. Um, oh man, like hot, hot takes, hot takes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, I I did enjoy doing the research for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as a little bit of spoiler, um, I feel like there's better games that they left behind. Well, it was funny looking into it. Uh, there was like a couple false false starts for it conceptually. And there were there were four false start starts. <laughs> yeah, which is funny to think about it being RE four. You know, it, it spawned Devil May Cry. Uh, yeah. It spawned some other game that I've never heard of that has to do with like a, a like a dog and like a girl and how the dog's like your companion. Because that was originally a concept with, uh, what's her face? Um, uh, what is her name? Yeah. The president's daughter. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. it's It's got an interesting history. I think I like the history uh, more than than the game itself. But um... <laughs> the game is the history, Zach. Respect it. <laughs> no, like I said, I think they dropped some better, better storylines. Along the way. <laughs> but we can talk about that next time. You're missing the point. It's not about the story. It's about having fun. <laughs> uh, with that, we'll see you guys next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.